Thanks, you guys. Well, um, now that we're done with hell, let's move on to holy war. <laughs> like, <laughs> I am the life at parties. <laughs> uh, does God command genocide in the Old Testament? This is the next thing we'll look at. And, and kind of the bigger theme of like violence and genocide in the Old Testament. Uh, many today are concerned. Obviously, holy war is a real problem. We have things like ISIS. Um, terrorist attacks. I, I know in Melbourne that the, there have been attacks here recently, and oh, since 9/11, uh, back home in my country in America, there's a con, uh, an elevated, escalated concern about religiously inspired violence and holy war. And often, I think because of this today, we see narratives in the Old Testament of God commanding His people to kill, and this can be really difficult for us to know how to, how to make sense of or understand how does this align with the goodness of Jesus and the, this is the God we, we believe in. Well, <clears throat> for me, this was actually a very personal question early on in my faith. So I came to know Jesus in college. Shortly, a few years later, I found myself working on Navajo Reservation. Uh, Navajo uh, being Native American people and indigenous people in America. And one of the things that became really heartbreaking for me was learning more in that season about the history, kind of U.S. history with Native peoples, um, and the role that uh, some of this Old Testament narrative had, had played in some of that. So Manifest Destiny in the 1800s uh, was ideology um, that was often used to justify westward expansion across the continent of North America. And sometimes uh, language and imagery from the Old Testament can be employed, almost a sense for Europeans of being like a, a new Israel and the North American continent, like this new promised land, uh, which put uh, native peoples in the unfortunate position of being like the Canaanites, right? It, seen in that, that light or that position. And seeing how this ethos, this ideology was used at times to justify uh, over 800 broken treaties, uh, some of the brutal massacres and forced migrations of Native people. And I found myself as a newer Christian uh, really wrestling with, man, like, God, if this is the way this thing goes down, like, I'd rather be on the side of the Navajo, right? Like, like I think I might, maybe would have rather been on the side of the Canaanites this weekend. So I'm going, how do I reconcile this part of the story, the biblical story, with my faith? Well, <clears throat> In response to that, you know, I, I, I said, God, I want to learn more. If it's there, I don't want to avoid it. And so dove in and just reading scripture. And very early on, began feeling like, God, there's something radically different going on here than mainstream holy war in our society. In fact, I would suggest, you know, holy war is a dominant feature of the history of our world. Like throughout the ages, nations have been warring against nations and using the gods, using their ideology to justify uh, conquering their neighbors and taking their stuff, right? And yet I began to find there's something radically different going on in the biblical story that not only like, okay, it's kind of like holy war, but paints a few lines in a different direction. No, it seems to be taking the mainstream picture of holy war and flipping it upside down on its head. And so I want to look today at some uh, paradigm shifts, once again, that I think can help us get a better sense of what's going on in the biblical story. Uh, you can think of this session in sort of two parts. Part one, I want to look at some big themes of just Israel and Canaan, who they were and what's going on. Second part, in the second half, we'll take a look at what I like to call the drastic marching orders. Some of the, God tells Israel, show no mercy, utterly destroy them, some gnarly commands. So we'll take a closer look there. But this first half, 
we'll get who is Israel, who is Canaan, what's going on here. Uh, I think one of the issues is that we often have some preloaded conceptions of holy war and who holy warriors are. And I think for many of us, when we think about holy warriors, I think we tend to think of something like this, right? <laughs> Rambo. I, I don't know if Rambo was big here in Australia, but when I was a kid growing up, this is like my iconic hero, you know, like, oh, Rambo goes in to save the day. And I think we tend to think of holy warriors as like the muscle-bound machine gun heroes, right? Uh, they're muscle-bound, like they're strong, they've been training, they've got strategy, they have trained for the fight. They've got machine guns, they've got advanced weaponry, they're able to use strategically to knock out their enemies. Uh, and they're heroes, they see themselves as justified by how great they are, how great their civilization is, and what they're fighting for. And what we find, I want to now walk us through, is that each of these three categories gets radically flipped on their head in the Old Testament, when we think of who Israel is. So, uh, big picture, we tend to think of holy wars, the strong, using God or the gods to justify their conquest of the weak. We find in the biblical story the opposite. We find God arising on behalf of the weak against the tyranny of the strong when it's raged for far too long. So Holy War in the Bible, it's not the strong using God to justify their conquest of the weak. It's God arising on behalf of the weak when the tyranny of the strong has gone on for far too long. We think about who Israel is in this narrative. Uh, they are a nation, a ragtag nation of slaves who have been getting their tails kicked on the outskirts of Egypt's empire for centuries. And they're going up against the mightiest imperial powerhouses of the ancient world. The story of slaves versus empire. Well, let's look at the three dominant categories here. Let's start with machine guns. Second one, does Israel have uh, machine guns, right? Uh, no. Uh, what we find in the narrative, obviously they didn't have machine guns back then, but did they have advanced weaponry. And what we find is that actually Israel was outrageously outgunned and outmanned in these stories. It's not like they came out of Egypt into the wilderness and there was like a stockpile of AK-47s waiting for them out in the desert, right? Uh, like they come out of Egypt and we read about Canaan. Canaan has horses and chariots and armor, like the most advanced weaponry of the ancient world. Israel, in contrast, has like the equivalent of like sticks and stones and whatever they've been able to kind of muddle together out in the wilderness. Israel is like a kindergartner taking on the high school senior class with a wiffle bat. Right? You guys have wiffle bats here? I don't know, like a little plastic bat, right? Uh, next, when we think about defenses, defense systems, Canaan has heavily fortified military outposts. Israel's defense system, we're told, is a small wooden box that she built in the desert, the Ark of the Covenant, that significant carrying God's presence with her, that goes with her is what protects her ultimately. We think of uh, generals. Canaan has highly experienced military generals who have been practicing strategy on the surrounding nations for generations. Uh, Israel's you know, generals have been fending off snakes in the wilderness. Um, Canaan has high-tech metal armor, uh, the most advanced of the day. Israel, we're told, is wearing the same ratty clothes they've been wandering around in the desert in for 40 years. Right? Uh, so Israel, picture here is like she's like storming Fort Knox with a water pistol, right? Like this heavily fortified, uh, and maybe here it would be the treasury building or something, right? Water pistol. Uh, then when we think about the warriors themselves, Canaan is depicted as a land of giants who have been feasting off the land of milk and honey for generations. 
people are intimidated when they first, the spies go to land at how massive they are. And uh, Israel, by contrast, is a comparative nation of runts who've been living off bread and water, kind of wilderness survival in the desert, the manna from heaven and the water from a rock. <clears throat> Canaan has wealth and affluence and all of the psychological confidence that that brings with it. Um, Israel, again, is marching into Canaan like ants marching in under elephant's feet. Right? So there is a radical, con when we think of weaponry here, there is a radical contrast between what Israel's got and what Canaan's got. There is a weakness. This is the weak going up against the strong, radically outgunned and radically outmanned. Uh, if we're thinking of weaponry, Israel's weaponry look less like this and more like this, right? <laughs> and I think it's significant here we read these verses like in the Psalms, uh, in the Psalms where Israel says, uh, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. This was Israel's battle cry, going, some, Egypt, Canaan, the, the powerhouses of, of our day, like they've got chariots, they've got horses, they've got advanced weaponry, they've got the stuff to just knock us out, but our confidence is not in our strength. Our confidence is in the strength of the God who fights for us. And side note, I think this is so significant for us, the church today, that our confidence is not in our strategies and our tactics. Our only hope in our day is dependence upon the God who goes with us and fights for us on our behalf. Well, this was antithetical to how, this is antithetical until how mainstream holy war tends to go down. They are the dramatic, laughable underdog. I mean, they're like the World Cup or something. This is not like uh, one higher-ranked team going up a against a slightly lesser-ranked team. This is like the world champions going up against like your local high school football league, right? Uh, they are dramatically, they're, they're not just a little bit different. They're in a different category all together. They should get their tails kicked. And their only hope is that God is fighting for them. All right, well, let's move to the next category. So Israel doesn't have machine guns, weaponry and all, uh, but is she muscle-bound? Is, is Israel muscle-bound? And once again, we find no. So here we're talking about, like, strength and strategy. Does Israel have kind of, you know, we think of, like, uh, this is people who've been training and getting ready for the fight, and they've got, like, all the best strategy and how to kind of go in and take care of business. And we find here, once again, that Israel is the exact opposite. Um, let's use Jericho as an example. Think about strategy. Sometimes Israel's strategies actually seem like an anti-strategy, right? So Israel, they're getting ready. This is the fortified entrance into Canaan, the military outpost um, going in. And Joshua, and they, oh, they, they come to the Lord, God, okay, what's the battle strategy, God? What's the plan? And God's like, all right, here's the plan. I want you to walk around the city for seven days and blow trumpets. <laughs> Dumb battle strategy, right? <laughs> like, like. Like, just what, what, what is going on there? That's a good way to get yourself killed. You can think of the analogies would be something like World War II, storming the beaches of Normandy, yet not with weapons, but with musical instruments, guitars and drums. You know, you're just like, what are you doing? You're going to get annihilated, right? Um, or, you know, back in the day, like the Mongols, like invading the Great Wall of China, but showing up and making music rather than war. It's, it's a ridiculous picture but it's designed to demonstrate something. Israel's going in in a posture of worship. 
Like, worship is their warfare, right? Like, they are going in in a posture of worship and trusting God to be the one who brings down the walls and fights for them on their behalf. Another story, if you think of the story of Gideon. Um, so once Israel is in the land, uh, sometime later, uh, Israel rebels, there's sin, idolatry, injustice, and, and the people become oppressed by the Midianites. And the picture is one where the Midianites have become kind of like uh, the new Egypt. And so Israel's back under this oppression and backward labor, and they cry out to God, and God says, all right, I'm going to raise up a deliverer. So he raises up Gideon. Gideon, however, is described as the least in his family. His family is the weakest tribe in the nation, and their tribe is the last in Israel. Once again, this is a theme throughout Scripture, that when God's ready for a revolution, he goes to the least and the last and the weakest, the unexpected on the outskirts of the periphery, and he raises them up for a new move of God. And Gideon... Uh, we're told that uh, Gideon, as he, you know, God says, hey, you know, kind of rally your people. And, and, and he goes up and they're looking at, and we're told that Midian's militias were so many people that were more than the sand on the seashore. They couldn't even be counted. It was more people than the sand on the seashore. So if you're Gideon, you're kind of, okay, God, uh, we've got our folks. How are we going to take on these sand on the seashore militias? We're horribly outnumbered. How are we going to do this? And God tells them, you've got too many men. And you've got to send 99% of them home, right? Once again, stupid battle strategy, right? And so this is the famous story where they go in the water, you know, they drink the water, and some people who drink uh, lap like dogs, other people drink more civilized, whatever, you know, and, and God weeds out 99% of the army. Takes it down for 32,000 people to 300. Uh, and yet, once again, the strategy seems ridiculous, but it's designed to demonstrate something. God tells Gideon, it's so that Israel may not boast, my own strength has saved me. God is actually demonstrating it's him fighting on behalf of his people, not them using God to justify fighting on his behalf. And this, once again, this would be a, a crazy battle strategy. If you think of the analogy of like, um, well, I, well, I'm not as familiar with Australian history, but, but in the U.S., like the Civil War and Lincoln Union soldiers sending like 99% of the Union soldiers home. You guys just go home. We'll take them on with 1% just to kind of prove a point, you know? It's like, no, that would be ridiculous. It's a death wish unless God is the one fighting on your behalf. <clears throat> well, so Israel doesn't have kind of strength and strategy on their side. As Israel kind of marches up to the walls of Canaan, I would suggest to you that uh, they look less like this and more like this, right? <laughs> <laughs> they should get knocked out unless God's the one fighting on their behalf. Um, <laughs> and I love, there, there's this famous verse that we read a lot in Scripture, uh, be still and know that I am God, right? Be still and know that I'm God. Are you familiar with that verse? Uh, I, I'm not sure if it's the same here in Australia, but often in the States where you most see this verse is like in a Hallmark card, like a, you know, the cute card where there's like the... Um, the calming scene on the lake or the pond. Uh, there's the little bench and the flowers are in bloom and, uh, or maybe the crochet on the wall. Or the, there's kind of this sense of like, life is chaotic, it gets hectic, busy, people, things to so get away, get silent, 
get to a place where you can calm yourself and reflect and remember that, and that I'm God. And those aren't bad things. I think those are good things. Those are really great things. Um, solitude, contemplation, reflection, and all. Um, and yet, it's, I think it's interesting to know that the original context, this was a holy war verse. Like in this original context, this was a holy war verse. It actually comes from when Israel is leaving Egypt and they come to the Red Sea. And they're going, okay, we got water, kind of the chaotic forces of nature on one side, and they've got Egypt's armies, kind of the chaotic forces of empire and, and political power on one side and natural power on the other, and they're about to get crushed and smashed in between. And God, what are we going to do? What's the battle strategy? What's the plan? And God says uh, through Moses, uh, he tells the people, Moses tells the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And Old Testament scholars would say this is the context where that phrase, be still and know that I am God, gets picked up from here and becomes a recurring motif and theme in Israel's history for their confidence and trust placing their confidence, their trust, their dependence on God to be the one who fights for them on their behalf. This is Israel's battle Christ. When we hear this verse, be still and know that I'm God, I think the picture we should have in our heads is less like uh, the monk in the monastery kind of getting away from the things of the world to contemplate. Not that it's bad. That's good. Those are good things. It can be fine. But I think the picture we should have more is something like um, a kid, like a youth with disabilities who's getting beat up and bullied by 10 bigger, stronger, older kids in the playground when suddenly hears the voice of his father step into the playground and say, sit back, son and watch me take care of these guys for you. Be still and know that I am God. This is interesting. Ben Ollenberger, an Old Testament scholar, he makes the observation how radical this was. Every other nation in antiquity claimed that their gods participated in war and were responsible for giving their warriors victory. But only Israel came to understand this claim to mean that it was unnecessary to fight. Like, there are... Scenes where Israel gets called in to kind of participate to finish off the job, but by and large, the major scene we're given here is one where um, God's involvement was one that invited Israel to to rest in and depend upon the God who fights for them. This is, again, in radical contrast to mainstream holy war. Israel is not taking on the empire for God. God is taking on the empire for Israel. And I think this confronts terrorist ideology, right? Because you could say, okay, um, okay, it's not the strong using God to justify their conquest of the weak here, but still couldn't terrorists say, well, we're the weak fighting on behalf of God against the strong, right? Uh, we're outgunned, we're outmanned, we're taking on the great guy. Um, but this is the opposite. Israel's not taking on the empire for God. God is taking it on for Israel. God is the primary agent doing the fighting. This is not uh, a group of cowards hiding and taking pot shots out from the caves with billions of dollars of international oil money. You know, like this is a visibly vulnerable, identifiable group of people standing out on the open battlefield about to get crushed, and their only hope is that God is the one who actually rises and fights on their behalf. Israel's motto is not, we will fight for God. Like, that's kind of the terrorist motto, right? Terrorist motto is, we will fight for God. 
Israel's motto is the opposite. God will fight for us. And if he doesn't, we don't stand a chance. There's an Old Testament scholar, Gerhard von Rad, a German scholar from back in the day. And he, he made the observation, uh, we would be greatly misunderstanding these wars if we sought to comprehend them as religious wars in the sense that it has become current for us. Israel did not arise to protect faith in Yahweh, but Yahweh came on the scene to defend Israel. It's more, this is not we will fight for God, but God will fight for us. Once again, I think there's implications for us as the church today. Are we seeking to fight using uh, our own power and money and fame and whatever, our, our own intellect, our own things that we can kind of muster up to try and uh, measure up against the cultural and ideological forces that are out there to kind of establish ourselves on the scene of the world? Or are we actually willing to become vulnerable and place ourselves in dependence on God that his presence going with us is the only shot we've got? that he would actually go with us and his presence go before us and he fight on our behalf. This is the cry of God's people. Okay, well, so we've seen that Israel didn't have machine guns, was not muscle-bound, and now let's look at the third category. Are they heroes, right? Like, do they consider themselves heroes? And what I mean by this is uh, heroes, throughout history, um, people have often used uh, the gods to justify, hey, we're justified in fighting you because of how great our civilization is, how great we are, our values are, our ideals are. Um, back in the Roman Empire, there was this idea of like the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and the sense was, hey, we're justified in knocking you down, neighbors, you know, because ultimately it's going to bring you into the glory of the Roman Empire, and you'll get all the benefits and greatness of our civilization. It may hurt for the moment, but it's in your it's in your best interest. It's for your good in the long run because of how great we are. In uh, more recent centuries, uh, the era of colonialism uh, could often be marked by a certain condescending or paternalistic attitude towards non-Western countries with a sense of like, dude, it's for your best that we come in and uh, colonize you. And even if we pull out loads of resources and send them back home to the mother country, but uh, in the end, because we're bringing the greatness of our civilization. Uh, what was sometimes called like the white man's burden, that there's this almost a duty or a burden uh, that European countries bore to kind of bring the blessings of uh, greatness of their civilization to the world. And so often in history, uh, there can be this sense that um, we're justified in conquering because of how great we are. And we can see this today in kind of the sense of uh, the global superpowers, kind of like, man, well, we've got Coca-Cola and computers and compact cars, and so we're justified in kind of economically establishing ourselves as the dominant power in your country. Well, whatever we might think of that, what we have to recognize is that something radically is going on, something radically different is going on in Israel's story. Uh, Israel is constantly told it is not because of your greatness. It's not because of how polished and civilized and whatever you are. Uh, one central Holy War verse is uh, Deuteronomy 9, the whole passage, Deuteronomy 7 and 9 are some central passages. And God tells the people, he says, hey, it is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of their land, but on the account of the wickedness of these nations, for you are a stiff-necked people. Not a very flattering, you're stiff-necked, you're stubborn, you're obstinate, you know. Um, so this is with Moses, people, God is constantly reminding his people, know this for sure, that as you go in, it is not because of how great you are. 
It's actually has to do with how messed up uh, they are, right? The place that you're going in is. Um, and this should be shocking. Because you probably heard kind of the, the classic truism that the victors write the history books, right? And what that means is when, you know, whoever wins the battle gets to tell about how it went down. And the victors, when someone wins, uh, we tend to like to depict our side as being strong, heroic, courageous, noble. Right? Uh, and yet Israel constantly, in, in her history books in the Old Testament, goes the opposite direction. And the stories time and time again are stories about how uh, Israel was weak, fearful, idolatrous, unbelieving, dishonest, and disobedient. She doesn't depict herself as the hero in the story, but almost as an anti-hero. It's almost like Israel like, hired a reporter that, to follow them around in the wilderness, and, or you know, in, in the, this whole saga, and meticulously track all of their biggest flaws and shortcomings and failings, and then blast them all over the history books, right? That'd be such an odd, I don't know how they do history books here in Australia, but in America, that would be so odd, you know, to have like your, your greatest flaws and fa failures blasted across the pages of your history. Israel not only had a um, greatness problem, also had a numbers problem. So Deuteronomy 7, since the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. That may not sound like much to us today, you're the fewest, but back then, numbers, there was strength in numbers. Having numbers meant something. I mean, partly it meant you had grown and populated, partly it meant you had conquered and assimilated others within your sphere or your scope. And why was Israel so behind in numbers? Well, a couple of reasons. I mean, one is God calls Abraham and it's almost like the other nations have already been going around the population racetrack for a few centuries, generations, right? And so uh, Israel kind of enters late in the game. And there's this picture in Ezekiel where um, when God finds Israel, it's kind of like after Egypt and uh, I think of Pharaoh's attempt at genocide, murdering all the babies. This picture in Ezekiel 16 where God finds Egypt and he pictures it like finding this baby that had been discarded out uh, in the the wilderness and uh, bloody and abandoned and about to die and yet God, it's not a very flattering image and yet God takes them to himself and cares for them and nurtures and nourishes them back to health. So when it comes to whether we're talking about their own righteousness or we're talking about their numbers, uh, their own greatness, Israel doesn't have much of it and yet God steps in on their behalf. Okay, what does all this mean? The, the significance, I think if we're kind of to zoom out to the 50,000 foot level, I think the big picture here would have been obvious in the ancient world. The big picture here is one where we see that God is choosing the smallest, weakest, most helpless, vulnerable, powerless people to declare to the mightiest, wickedest, bloodiest, nastiest powerhouse empires that this is the kind of God I am a God who identifies with the vulnerable and the downtrodden and exploited, and who is patient with the injustice and idolatry of our world, but ultimately whose patience will not last forever, and who ultimately will arise to humble the proud and exalt the humble, and to establish his justice in the world. The, I think all of this we've been talking about can kind of be summarized and seen. If I were to choose one story, it would probably be David and Goliath. Right? So the classic story, we think about David and Goliath, we often think of it as like a children's story, right? Like um, uh, 
little guy up against the giant, you know. And it is, that's, that's great. But this is actually like the epitomal, climactic holy war story. We're told that it takes place in the Valley of Elah. And the Valley of Elah was bordering the final area of the promised land that had yet to be claimed. And so what we're seeing here, what began back in the days of Joshua is now ending in the days of David, generations later. This is the end of the, um, this is the end of the coming into the promised land. And as we see David step up against Goliath, I think we see in them uh, a picture. You're like, yeah, they're two individuals, but they're also representatives, almost like iconic representatives of everything that's gone before. And so Goliath looks like Canaan. He has got machine guns, right? He's got like uh, the, the weaponry and the armor, the most advanced firepower the ancient world had to offer. He's got someone like a sword bearer, someone coming out to help him with all of his equipment and all. And you've got David, in contrast, is like the shepherd in his, he can't even fit in the armor. He's just out in his vulnerable, unprotected clothing. You've got Goliath when it comes to being muscle-bound. This is a trained warrior fighter who's got all the experience and everything behind him. The strategy, perfect strategy, like, you know, uh, walk up to your enemy and chop off their head, right? <laughs> David's strategy is ridiculous, like throw pebbles at Mount Everest and hope it falls down, you know, like, like, and then when you think about the hero mentality, like Goliath's boasts are on behalf of my gods. I'm going to fight on behalf of my gods to take you down. David's claim is the opposite. David says, into effect, God will fight on my behalf and knock you out for his glory and my protection. David and Goliath epitomize everything that has come before. This is a picture, like almost again, like an iconic representative picture of the holy war that comes at its consummation. And with the sling and the stones, God takes down Goliath. <clears throat> All right, well, to wrap up this first half, um, I want to give you something practical that you can take home with you. Because I know um, sometimes these conversations can be so theoretical, and you want something, okay, what, what can I do with this in my own home life, and when I step back home tomorrow? And so I want to give you some practical tips. These are 10, stip, 10, 10 tips on how to fight a holy war, all right? So if you want to go and fight a real biblical holy war and take this home and implement it, this is how you do it, okay? Step number one is throw away your armor. Get rid of it, right? No defenses allowed. Step number two is burn your tactical training books. No strategy, right? Or the strategy's got to be ridiculous. <laughs> Step number three, find the cheapest, most ineffective weapons you can. Like your kid's Nerf gun, kid works, like that, right? Four, visit a rehab center to find military leaders with issues. <laughs> Five, hire a reporter to meticul meticulously track all your flaws and failures. Six, boast to your enemies about how backwards your civilization is. Seven, find the biggest, baddest superpower who will surely kick your tail. Eight, pick a fight. Nine, walk into the middle of the battlefield. And ten, pray that God shows up. <laughs> Nobody in their right mind is going to fight a battle like this, right? Like, this is ridiculous. And so I think sometimes there's this concern that, well, if we believe in Holy War in the Old Testament, it's going to make us more prone to be violent people today. But I think, man, it's just because we've got a very distant, superficial 
caricature view of what's actually going on. The more you actually get in the story, you're like, no one in their right mind is going to try something like this today, right? Um, and yet, I think it's a picture that speaks to, ultimately to a God who is patient with the sin, the injustice, the rebellion of his world. But it's good news that ultimately his patience will not last forever. And he will come to arise on behalf of the exploited and the downtrodden and to establish his justice and his kingdom in the world. <clears throat> okay, so consider that as part one. Everything you talked about, right? So far. Now, part two, uh, I want to look at what we could call the drastic marching orders. Right? So this is now where, where Israel, though, when she goes into the land, she's told some pretty severe things, some things that can sound severe things, things that can sound almost genocidal at first glance, right? Israel is told to show no mercy, to utterly destroy them, do not leave alive anything that breathes. And at first glance, again, this language can sound genocidal, like, uh, okay, so it's the weak, God arises on behalf of the weak, but still, this sounds pretty harsh, right? So what I want to do here is try and offer three more uh, paradigm shifts, uh, some shifts that have helped me to kind of, I, th I think, get a clear sense of what I think is going on in these stories, right? Um, but again, first off, this can sound really gnarly. Uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, pronounced you know, atheist, kind of a leading uh, atheist voice, uh, uses verses like these to talk about uh, this is a God of ethnic cleansing, uh, and his people do it with xenophobic relish, like this fear of the outsider. Uh, these are bloodthirsty massacres. Is he right? What's going on here? Well, let's look at a few of these, these paradigm shifts, right? So the first one is um, that these are military cities. And so we read about these taking place in the context of cities. And when you and I hear the word city today, I think we tend to think of a civilian population center, right? So I live in a city back home from Portland, moved to Phoenix, both places. It's like, okay, I live in, I've lived in cities most of my life. All my life. I, I walk outside the front door in the city and I see across the street like the neighbor's kid house and the white picket fence and the kids running around the front yard and I go down the street and I see the school down one street and the hospital nearby and I go the other and there's restaurants and businesses and the bank and whatever else. And so we tend to think of cities today as civilian population centers, the place where life takes place. Um, but it was not so in the ancient world. Like back in the day, especially in the ancient Near East, cities were small, fortified military outposts. In this time and place in Israel's history, cities were small, fortified military outposts that guarded the roads leading up to the places where the villages were, where the people lived. Um, the word here in Hebrew, it's ir, uh, I-Y-R, kind of the English transliteration. And it's uh, these were places where Historically, archaeologically, looking, it was the soldiers and the government, by and large, were the only, maybe like a government office and the soldiers' outposts, the places the villages looked to for protection. I think the picture that we should have here is that um, God is pulling down the Great Wall of China, not demolishing Beijing, right? Like uh, Israel is taking out the Pentagon, not New York City. These are defensive military installations that are getting knocked out, not civilian population centers being wiped out. Uh, Paul Copan is a scholar, apologist. He, he talks about this. He says, um, 
All the he kind of sums up the archaeological findings. All the archaeological evidence indicates that no civilian populations existed at Jericho, Ai, and other cities mentioned in Joshua. Uh, Jericho is a small settlement of probably 100 or fewer soldiers. This is why all of Israel could circle it seven times and then do battle against it on the same day. Similarly, we read about a lot of kings getting taken out, right? Like um, the word there in Hebrew, it's melech. And when we think of king, we think of like the president or the king, the, the top dog. Uh, back in the day, these melech, these kings were more like generals. Uh, they were uh, responsible for overseeing their troops and were often responsible to hire melech or kings or generals off-site. That's why we can read about there's so many kings in the book of Joshua and places that are getting, getting knocked out. It's like, man, they got... 51 presidents are you know, on the scene, but these are uh, military generals. And the significance here, I think the picture we should have is that Israel is attacking military strongholds, knocking out generals, and putting their soldiers to flight, not invading cities, assassinating presidents, and slaughtering civilians. Uh, Israel is taking on Napoleon and his militias, not Paris and her masses. Right? <clears throat> Two common questions that arise here. Uh, one often is like, well, what about Rahab? Right? Like Rahab, she's a civilian. She's at Jericho, all that. And yes, uh, so Rahab, uh, scholars believe, uh, you know, she was a prostitute. Scholars believe that she likely ran the hostel. Um, so often uh, in these military outposts in the ancient Near East, they would have a hostel slash bar kind of pub, you know, and this was a place where when people were visiting from outside, they would stay here so that the military could keep a close watch and eye on them, right? And um, this is also a place where the soldiers would often go for a drink kind of after work, right? And often these hostels slash pubs were run by prostitutes um, because unfortunately the soldiers sometimes wanted more than just beer, right? And so it makes sense that Rahab would be running uh, this place. It makes sense that this is where the outside visitors would go to find a place to stay. It makes sense that this is where the military would come looking for them when Rahab has to hide them. Uh, what I find more significant and intriguing is that Rahab is the only civilian mentioned by name as being in, in these cities, and her and her family are spared. <clears throat> we also read a, the second question come up here is there's a phrase that shows up sometimes. Um, it's very rare, but I think it's two or three times. Uh, the Israel uh, knocked out the city and made sure no one was left inside the city, all the men, women, and children, young and, young and old. And so that can sound like, well, hey, it's talking about the city and then knocking out you know, women and children, young and old. Uh, but this phrase in Hebrew, it's what um, sometimes call, it's called a merism, where it's like you take some extreme things at either end to say, hey, I'm talking about everything in between. So heaven and earth is a Hebrew merism, where it's, it's talking about the skies and the land, but it's not just talking about that. It's using that as a merism to encompass everything in between, right? Like the birds and the flowers and the trees and the field. Similarly here, this phrase is a way of going, hey, all of life, like, man, well, I want you to knock out the military city, and I want you to make sure that there's nothing left inside. Uh, but the reality is, if, for the average Hebrew, you know, Israelite reader, um, these stories, you wouldn't expect any civilians to be inside. The text doesn't require it, and the assumption would be for an ancient audience, like, well, they're not inside, because when battles come in, you get out of Dodge. And here, I think one of the problems is that uh, a lot of our pictures of ancient warfare have been shaped by kind of Middle Ages type imagery. You know? 
where battle's coming, and it's like, dude, get into the castle, get into the fortress, batten down the hatches, pull up the drawbridge, and wait while the city's under siege. But in the ancient Near East, battle worked the opposite way. When news of invasion was coming, everyone would get out of Dodge and flee and look to the soldiers and the military in the city to kind of um, defend. So uh, John Goldingay, Old Testament scholar, uh, summarized it this way. He says, you know, when a city is in danger of falling, he's talking about in the ancient world here, uh, people do not simply wait there to be killed, they get out. Only people who do not get out, such as the city's defenders, get killed. So in summary here, these are military cities. Uh, there's no survivors. Uh, the fortresses are taken over, and the defenders have either fled or been killed. All right, so that's the first shift. Second shift here is to recognize that Israel is using what I like to call ancient trash talk, right? <laughs> ancient trash talk. Uh, this is how people in the ancient Near East talked about war. Uh, it's interesting. You can read historically uh, loads of accounts from the ancient Near East of people talking about these battles, and they like to use language that uh, can sound extreme genocidal at first glance. And so uh, we invaded the Takarimu Mountains and we completely exterminated all the peoples. We wiped them off the face of the planet. We wiped them off the earth. They will never be back ever again. They are gone for good. The only issue is you read a year later in next year's annals and the same people are back again as strong as ever knocking you out, you know? And this happened, there are passages where it's said of Israel, like we wiped Israel off the face of the planet. They'll never be around again. Like their whole nation is gone. And obviously that didn't happen right next year. So uh, there is this pattern, uh, what we call exaggerated war rhetoric right, in ancient Greece, where people like to use, ancient peoples in this region like to use exaggerated language and claims to, um, to talk about what had happened. And this wasn't lying. Uh, this is, you know, I like to think about it as like, let's say a game of basketball where uh, you, you kind of watch, let's say you miss the game, but you go into the locker room after the game, and you hear the players talking about it, and they're like, man, we wiped the floor with them. Like, they could not get a thing on us. They had nothing on us. We just annihilated them. They, man, we, oh, you know, they, they were done, nothing. And if you took the rhetoric extremely, like, hyper-literally, you would go, oh, my gosh, I think the score is like 150 to zero, right? Like, and yet then you walk out of the locker room and you look at the scoreboard and you go, oh, it was 120 to 103, right? Like it was a significant, decisive victory, but not as extreme as the rhetoric alone would lead you to believe. And you don't go, man, why do those players got to be lying in the locker room? Like, why can't they, you know, like you don't think they're li lying. You just recognize they're using a recognized form of speech. Now, <laughs> it's helpful. Um, it's helpful to have this ancient Near Eastern context, but I'd suggest to you, even if we didn't have that, the Old Testament demands to be read this way. It doesn't make sense otherwise. Internally, within the Old Testament itself, we see uh, Scripture making it very clear that this is how the language is being used. Um, here's what I mean. There's really only two instances, uh, two battles that this picture gets used for. Right? There's, there's four instances of the language is used. So there's like God saying, hey, go do this. There's two battles where Israel says, we're doing it. <laughs> and then there's one case where they're looking back in retrospect and going, we did it. Right? And so we're really talking about kind of these two significant battles. Um, and so let's take a quick look at the, the most significant one. In both of them, 
The same is all we have to do is go a little later in the story to find that the same people who are supposedly wiped off the face of the earth are back again, strong as ever, causing trouble. So Joshua 9 to 12, this is the most significant one. Uh, this is where uh, it's interesting to note it's presented as a defensive battle where Joshua and the troops, uh, all these kings, like 30-something kings of northern Canaan and some kings of southern Canaan, like they all rally their forces and form these coalitions, and they're coming on the offensive, and their goal is to annihilate and take out Israel. So it's presented as a defensive battle. And Joshua and the troops are like, God, what are we going to do? We're going to get crushed once again. We're outgunned. We're outnumbered. We're outmanned. What's, going to, you know, what, what's the plan? And once again, God's this effect, watch me fight for you. You need only to be still. This is the famous story where the sun stands still for a day, and God hurls hailstones from heaven on the enemy armies, and they flee, and Israel chases them down, and it's a rout. And after they win, Joshua's so excited. You can imagine everyone jumping up and down, and they go, we did it. We defeated all the kings of Canaan. We conquered all the militias of Canaan. We took all the lands of Canaan. We destroyed all the Canaanites. And he keeps going. He's like, we utterly destroyed them. We showed no mercy. We did not leave alive anything that breathes. Now, if you take this language at face value, completely like hyper-literally, um, what he is explicitly saying is the conquest is over. Promised land is ours. Game over. Dunzo. We won. It's done. The only problem with that is that we are in Joshua 12. <laughs> and all you have to do is keep reading into Joshua 13 and 14. Like, it continues. And the Canaanites, the people are still there as strong as ever and going to be problems through the rest of Joshua into the book of Judges, up through Judges into 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, all the way up until the day of David. We still have books of the Bible, generations of Israel's history uh, to go until what he's saying actually comes to completion. The language is intended to be understood hyperbolically. This is the way Israel understood it historically, and it's the only way the rest of the story makes sense. Uh, the other passages later in the uh, days of Saul, an encounter with the Amalekites, and once again you go a little further in the story and you find they're still... Malachites are still around, causing trouble, strong as ever. Uh, Christopher Wright, uh, one of the most kind of respected Old Testament scholars in the world today, he comments on this. He says, we must also recognize that the language of warfare had a conventional rhetoric that liked to make absolute and universal claims about total victory and completely wiping out the enemy. Such rhetoric often exceeded reality on the ground. This is not to accuse the biblical writers of falsehood, but to recognize the literary conventions of writing about warfare. So saying the Bible is using language rhetoric that was commonly understood in the day. And I think it's important here when he says it's not to accuse the biblical writers of falsehood. He's going, it's, it's like saying, it's not to say, hey, why basketball players? Why you got to be lying in the locker room, right? Like it's not saying uh, that, uh, that scripture is unreliable or is untrue or is false or whatever. It's saying it's employing a recognized uh, form of language. And so when we think about this, the authority of scripture... Um, when we think about like the idea of hermeneutics or how do we interpret scripture, one of the first things that we have to do is kind of ask like, what genre of literature is this? You know, so um, if we're reading uh, apocalyptic literature like Revelation, we're going to read that a little differently than we would uh, one of the letters of Paul, right? Where one is using a lot of loaded imagery and symbolism and things, and that's going to be different than kind of often like Paul giving. Uh, 
a letter of instruction to a church. Um, when we read Jesus' parables, we're going to understand that a little differently, approach it a little differently than we would like the book of First and Second Chronicles, which is more like history. Right? So as we engage the authority of Scripture and God's story in our lives and for our world, uh, one thing that's really important is first grappling, with, well, what's the context? What's the genre here? I'd suggest to you when it comes to Joshua and, and uh, where, where this language most particularly shows up, Deuteronomy, that um, there's a genre here of like ancient war literature and narrative rhetoric that's employing an understood use of language. All right, well, the next, uh, the third and final one. So we've seen these are military cities, not civilian population centers. Israel is using ancient trash talk, kind of exaggerated war rhetoric, common in the ancient Near East. And the third one, and this is maybe the most important shift here, is to recognize that the dominant language that's used for Israel's encounter with Canaan is not killing them off, but driving them out. Driving them out. This is the language of eviction, not murder. Right? <clears throat> The drastic marching orders we just talked about, those are very rare. Again, there's kind of those four key times that they show up. But the language of driving the Canaanites out, it's used over 50 times in the Old Testament for Israel's encounter with Canaan. This is the primary language. And again, this is the language of eviction, not murder. I like that rowdy dancer who gets bounced from the club for being obnoxious, right? Like, bad news is you got bounced. Good news is you're still alive. And I think that's kind of the picture we should have in mind here. Uh, Canaanites, you know, Canaanites like these uh, hooligans who've been tearing apart God's promised land, his good garden, for too long. And now God, as the vineyard owner, is coming to kick them out and hand it over instead of to the powerful, to this nation of ragamuffin, wandering, homeless slaves, and to make it a home for them. Let's look at three passages where this examples where this language shows up to get a picture of it. Uh, Deuteronomy 11, uh, God is telling his people, the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. Notice how God is the primary agent doing the eviction, not Israel. And notice the emphasis on the power dynamic here, how much larger and stronger they are than God's people. Exodus 23, God says, little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. Notice how this is depicted as, uh, not as an overnight ejection, but a gradual process that takes place over an extended period of time. Joshua 23 says, The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. This is looking back in retrospect and going, man, this was not us fighting on behalf of God. This was God fighting on behalf of us. And when... We see this. There are times that Israel gets called in to participate, but it's usually like a sense that God's already brought things 99% to the point of completion, and they're just stepping in to finish off what God's already started. <clears throat> okay, well, wrapping up, uh, conclusion. I can bring my phone up. I'm not sure what time it is. How are we? Uh, okay, cool. Let's wrap it up here. Um, a few final thoughts in conclusion. One of the things that, well, Actually, really quick, on this uh, driving out imagery, this is not the first time that this imagery shows up. Can you think of any other places earlier in the biblical story where people are driven out? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, exactly. Same phrase. I suggest it's the same kind of image. 
that as Adam and Eve unleash the destructive power of sin into God's good garden, and then they get driven out. And so now the Canaanites, uh, if we had more time to dive in, like the, the Canaanites are associated with Babylon in some of the language and history here. And so there's a sense that Babylon has invaded God's good garden and is unleashing the power of destructive power of evil and sin and rebellion. And now uh, God is driving them out and handing over his good garden of the promised land to Israel. Yet one of the things we'll see later in the story, we would see later in the story, is that Israel becomes as corrupt and even worse. It's described as being worse than the nations that came before them. And in the exile... Israel is herself driven out. God drives his own people out of the land. Um, they're not exempt from this judgment when they get as bad as uh, the Canaanites ever were. <clears throat> and so it's this theme of God um, driving his people out of the garden when, uh, when our rebellion and evil has tearing apart his good world and handing it over to new owners. One of the things that strikes me most about the big picture of the story is the patience of God. Genesis 15, we read, God telling Abraham, he's going to be patient for over 400 years with the sin of the Canaanites, the Amorites, and the people in the land. And if I'm Abraham, I'm going like, what? God, my people are going to go into slavery? My children, my grandkids? Like, I gave everything to follow you, and you're going to allow my own people to suffer for this long under the weight of this? And... Why? God, you can do what you want to me, but please protect my kids, my grandkids. And God's response, this vision Genesis 15 is essentially going, um, why, God, why? And God's response is because I'm being patient with Canaan. God's patience is not like he's just out watching the dandelions grow or anything. Like God's patience entails the suffering of his people in the meantime. And I am struck more by the astounding patience of God. And I think we see this today. This is where I believe these, this, these stories, the narrative of the Old Testament here, actually becomes a source of hope for today. That today, I believe, similarly, God is being patient with the powers of our world. That God is being patient with what the New Testament image picks up, that image of Babylon, Revelation, this global powerhouse that dominates uh, God's world and often leads to oppression and suffering of God's people and others, many others with the boot of power on their neck. And God, the beauty is that God hears the cries of his people crying out from all the earth. He hears, he sees the blood that has been spilled, the lives that have been shattered, the people groaning under the weight of oppression and sin. And we find this cry of God, how long, O Lord, until you come to judge and redeem? The New Testament is, even the Old, is not so much like, God, if you're good, how could you ever come to judge and redeem? The question is, God, because you are good, why do you wait so long? And the hope is that because God is good, he is coming to tear down Babylon and to reestablish his kingdom in its place. And this is good news for those who suffer under the weight and oppression of our world today and who long and put their hope in the coming of God's kingdom. And once more, I think often for us as the church, the body of Christ, we can feel weak in the face of the powers of the world, and yet we exist dependent upon the strength of the God who goes with us and fights our battles on our 
behalf and who ultimately, even though we may suffer defeat in the short term, we may suffer loss in the battles, and yet the war has been won. Christ has won the victory, and he is coming to tear down Babylon to establish God's kingdom in its place. And this should be a source of hope for those of us who place our hope in Christ and his kingdom today. Thanks. Let's now go into, uh, similarly, before we head into lunchtime, I think we've still got a little time, and would love to hear just discuss what stood out to you. So there was, there was a lot there, kind of the three shifts uh, before the first and second halves. Uh, just share anything that stood out to you um, with the people around you. Let's go break, discuss. <laughs>